Please listen carefully. Welcome to Insider Threat, a podcast about technology and security. I'm Andy Kale, and I've been building online data products for about a decade. And joining me is Michael Anaya, a cybersecurity investigator and former supervisory special agent in the FBI field office in Atlanta. Hello, Michael. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Doing good, doing good. Uh, welcome to our first episode of our super cool podcast. <laughs> uh, it's going to be epic. Oh, man, I can't wait. Today, we're going to talk about uh, device security, specifically because of some events that occurred last week. Rudy Giuliani, this is what it's connected to. He's making headlines because of a butt dial. don't think I've ever said that on TV before. Trump's lawyer reportedly butt dialed an NBC News reporter twice and left long voicemail messages. Just weeks after Rudy Giuliani was appointed President Trump's cybersecurity advisor back in 2017, he showed up at an Apple store with a problem. Forgot his iPhone password. He had botched the entry so many times the device locked him out. We're going to discuss how this is a problematic sign for national security, as well as an illustration of how device security and human behavior can be a major threat to any organization. But first, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, DevCon. DevCon is an edge security software company that works with businesses to protect their customers from data theft, ransomware, and other exploits. DevCon believes that digital security is a fundamental component of modern freedom. Businesses can join DevCon's Protect Elect 2020 initiative and get access to real-time protection from malvertising for free. You can start by visiting devcondetect.com. In interest of disclosure, it's important to note that both Michael and I work for DevCon when we're not busy podcasting. So, <laughs> that out of the way, Michael, let's dig in here. You were quoted in an NBC News report last week on this story, and you called the situation crazy. So, what's crazy about it? Uh, awesome, Andy. Let's <laughs> uh, <laughs> put you on the spot. Out of, exactly. Straight out of the gate. <laughs> uh, so I think it's important to sort of frame it a little bit. Um, what I meant by crazy was a situation. So not necessarily the person, personalities, or the institutions involved. And I think that's important uh, to note. It, in my mind, what I found disconcerting was the fact that you had an individual, Rudy Giuliani, the personal attorney to the President of the United States, who basically took their cell phone into an Apple store, and it was a personal cell phone, at least that's what I believe it was, and asked for assistance. The crazy component was that there wasn't necessarily a process in place so that someone could help uh, Mr. Giuliani with his technical difficulties. And by someone, I mean someone associated with the White House or the U.S. government. It, the, I, didn't, I did not envision when the reporter was asking me, I didn't know, back up a little bit, when the reporter asked me to do the interview, I didn't really know what the situation was. He kind of explained it to me as the interview was, was unfolding. And this information was becoming made aware to me real time. And so I realized, wow, that is it's slightly unbelievable that someone so close to the most powerful person in the world, there isn't a security procedure or a standard operating procedure in place so that he could get technical assistance. And again, the if key he's locked out of his iPhone or, or whatever. Exactly. Whether it's something right. that he himself caused or there's a technical malfunction with the device, there should be a system in play so that someone like him or someone in a position of authority and power that he has has a way to get help in a safe environment, free from the thought of oversight or for sensitive information that undoubtedly is on his device 
be made available to people who should not have access to it. Yeah, that 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 makes sense to me. And I, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I think that your characterization of the situation was completely reasonable, especially if you were actually learning about it in real time. Um, but but let's let's back up for just a second and and talk before we before we dive into kind of the Apple Store visit and sort of like how what organizations can learn from from that particular thing. Let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, the phone call. So I, I we've all been on one or maybe both ends of a butt dial before. So usually for me, this just means that. Um, I get to hear what my stepdad is watching on television for a few minutes, right? But like, <laughs> why, why is this a like? Why is this a big deal? Why is that phone call? Um, you know, why does that raise an eyebrow of of security professionals? So, what raised the concern for me was what the reporter shared during the interview. Um, you're right; we've all been there. We've had that happen to us. It happened to me a few times. Um, ultimately, though, what I was told was that this has happened a litany of times. Um, he said a number of times has been reported that this is kind of like an ongoing issue. At least that's what. Yeah, I think that the characterization was that like every reporter in D.C. has some kind of butt dialed by Rudy Giuliani story, right? So, exactly. So that's that's what I was told. Again, I've never met the individual, um, and so I've, I've never had this experience of him calling me accidentally. But ultimately, <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, uh, it's it was uh, it's one of those things that's concerning from the fact that there are so many sensitive conversations he's privy to that he's having with the president, with others associated with the president, um, especially in a situation he finds himself in dealing with a lot of international affairs. Those are sensitive conversations, and those conversations should definitely be kept private. Uh, when I was with the FBI for about 14 years. That was something paramount for us to ensure that information didn't bleed over. When you're having a conversation, information was highly compartmentalized. So depending on the classification of the conversation, the classification of the information, it was placed in a compartment. So if it was unclassed, it was something open for some level of uh, deception, dissemination. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. if it were something, a higher classification, like secret or top secret, those are things that are definitely guarded and you should not disseminate. So ultimately, when you're having a conversation with something sensitive, that's something first and foremost to be thinking about. So if I'm having a sensitive conversation and I've accidentally dialed someone who is outside of the parameters of who should be on that call or be privy to information, that's highly problematic. Right. And I, and I, I guess it, it really just goes to the notion of like um, the kind of general awareness about the security of your of your conversations, right? So, I mean, like, what is the practical, um, you know, what's the practical upshot here? Is this a situation where, you know, I mean, you know, we could talk, we, we, we can and, and, and we'll talk a little bit about sort of bring your own device and, and how that kind of policy can be, can be problematic for an organization. But as an individual, you know, is it simply as, um, as, is it as simple as like in the context of a conversation, just you know, double check your phone, for example? Like, is that is it is it really that simple? <laughs> I think it depends on the individual. <laughs> if you find yourself dealing with this a, a, a number of times, definitely you need to double check your phone. But like for all all people who are using cell phones who may have had this problem and are kind of wondering how to remedy it, so each device is a little different. So like for example. You can prevent this by enabling a lock screen with a passcode, and that's just good security practice in general. You can configure device so you hit the power button, whether it's an iPhone or it's Android phone, it would go to the lock screen. 
And so like for example, for an iPhone, you can open up settings app and choose touch ID and passcode um, to get to the relevant controls. On Android, you basically go to settings, to security and location. It's a little different. Android has a lot of different variations. Uh, but you basically get to the screen lock method and you can choose what you like. Um, there's something in Android called smart lock. Smart lock is ability to lock your phone and unlock your phone. And one thing I like to kind of add here, there's a feature on Android called on-body detection. Uh, you want to make sure this is set to off. Um, when you have on-body detection, what that basically allows you to do is your phone, the Android will determine, oh, it's on their person, so I will remain unlocked. And so if you have it unlocked and it's on your person, there's a higher probability that you're going to, you know, uh, potentially fall prey to an accidental dial. So sure. again, just one small tip, but yeah, if someone's concerned, those are just a few things you can do to sort of better secure your device to ensure you don't have any of these situations arise. Yeah, that, you know, that makes sense to me. It seems to me that, that um, some of these sort of same, you know, we, we know, for example, that Rui Giuliani has a lock screen enabled because it was... Um, an incorrect passcode that had him, that locked him out of his phone, right? It's like these little these little uh, human things that can that can cause you know larger problems. And and Giuliani himself tweeted in response to the stories. Uh, he was tweeting at NBC News, and he said that that last he checked, the FBI last year had to ask Apple to unlock an iPhone too. Um, he says we're all human, maybe just not tonight. Jack o' lantern emoji, which was a reference to the fact that the story broke on on Halloween. Um, to your knowledge, is this true? Does the FBI use the Genius Bar as an investigative branch for uh, for uh, <laughs> cybercrime? Oh my God, <laughs> that would be epic if that were the case. If I were to announce, yes, to let everybody know, that's exactly what the FBI does. We take devices to the Apple Genius Bar and ask them for assistance. So, uh, you know, obviously, you made that in just, but. Uh, no, uh, the FBI has a, a series of procedures in play. He was referring to a situation that occurred years ago where the FBI famously asked Apple to help unlock a device, and Apple basically said they wouldn't do it. That's what he was referring to. But no, so the FBI has a series of protocols in play. If a device, just like major corporations or any type of uh, organization would likely have or should have, if my corporate device or uh, or a device that is given to you by an organization happened to have a technical malfunction or the lock screen, I, I didn't enter the correct um, passcode and now it's about to erase itself, I would take it to a technical assistance group. So an IT, IT individual in my organization who's empowered to unlock that device. And you know, full disclosure, uh, Andy, this actually happened to me in the FBI. So <laughs> I actually forgot my passcode. And I got to, I think, nine, right? I think that's the standard. And then 10, it's like, we're going to raise your device. And I was actually on travel to another field office. And I went to that field office's technical individual who was empowered and uh, in charge with this issue. And they helped me. They helped remedy the problem. Is that, is that better or worse in FBI culture that you weren't at your own field office? Like, is it... Did you at least like not have to show your face at your own field office's uh, <laughs> IT person, or is it is it worse to be no, visiting and have to deal with? Exactly, uh, I didn't matter, but because the <laughs> the again more granular information than people probably care to know, they had to call my field office anyway to verify oh, okay. my identity. So you were you were outed no matter what. Right, exactly. It didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter. Uh, but yeah, it, it happens. It's very common, so people shouldn't be you know embarrassed by it. 
but it definitely happens and there definitely should be a protocol in place so that when your employees of an organization have this problem, they don't feel embarrassed, that they feel like there's a way they could help remedy the situation because cell phones are so vital. We rely on them so much for so many different things. They're so powerful. I think we'll get into that a little bit later in the podcast, but they really are a gateway to so much data. Um, and also, real quick, the, the flyback on what you said regarding he had a lock screen. One of the things I think is important to know on iPhone, and those iPhone listeners know this, on your lock screen, you can actually still enable a lot of features, including dialing someone. In your mm -hmm. settings, you can turn all that off. So if you're constantly finding yourself in a situation, you can turn off pretty much everything's locked down on your iPhone, so you will not be able to accidentally dial anyone. I'll have to do that because my big problem is butt flashlight. Like I turn my flashlight on a lot and my battery drains. It's a real, I, like a... Andy, I want to have a random story for you about the flashlight. It's completely unrelated, but slightly related. Now's the time. Let's do it. So, a uh, funny story. Um, I'm doing a surveillance at a business. This was back when I was with the Bureau. And I decided to... Uh, record the inside of a business that we were about to execute a search warrant on. Um, so I decided to go in there with my surreptitiously, secretly, just like everything you see in movies and television. The camera phone was going to be in my front pocket. No one was going to know anything. So I go into this uh, location. I'm walking around, and it's open to the public. So I'm walking in. People are kind of looking at me. And I feel like, why is everyone staring at me? The operator, the owner of the establishment looks at me and he's like, are you recording? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not, sir. And I nervously walked out. So I go out back to my car and I sit down. I look down. My camera light is on. So oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's, my, it's my rear facing light is completely shining. And I'm like, oh. Like through your shirt pocket? Because uh, I, I positioned it so the camera was right above my shirt pocket. So you oh, see my gosh. It was so embarrassing. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, my God. I cannot believe <laughs> I did that. Yeah. So, so it happens to the best of us. Yeah, That's what we've learned I today. Can, I can relate to your camera issue that you dealt with with the, the flashlight. So Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges I think, you know, in this story and then, you know, sort of like what we can think about in terms of any organization that has security issues is, is this concept of, of like bring your own device, you know? Um, I think it used to be, you know, several years ago that, you know, any devices you used for work were issued by work. And, um, you know, this was before, of course, we all, uh, you know, sort of expected to have phones in our pockets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and now that it's become such a personal device, uh, you know, a lot of people have a hard time divorcing themselves for that. And businesses have instead taken on this, this idea of, you know, you can bring your own device and do your work from it. Um, what, you know, given that that means that, that many organizations don't have the ability to sort of like lock those things down with, you know, either physically in terms of like it can't leave the premises or, or with software, you know, what, what kinds of practices can be put into place to try to help folks uh, have this more sort of secure mindset around the business actions for their devices? That's a really good question. Um, I would love to get your feedback on that too, in terms of like the BYOD elements. Um, mm -hmm. So purely from a security perspective, just talking about that initially, I'm, I'm really not, I don't really advise companies to have uh, bring your own device practices in play. 
it gets convoluted as to what authority the organization has over the material or even access level to that device. Um, and it gets kind of murky. Um, and there are situations like if you had an employee and they may have had access to something that is something that they shouldn't have access to, you as an organization likely don't have any dominion over that device. So again, it gets murky in those situations. I prefer and I advise companies to, if they have the a means to do so, um, acquire actual phones for their employees that are corporate devices. Um, but if you're in a situation where you're bootstrapped and that's not something that you're going to do and you're going to allow your employees to bring in their own devices, it really comes down to uh, layered security. Um, I think that's really the best thing to do. And, and organizations can, I encourage them to think through this situation. But ultimately, like just top of my head, um, you know, just basically create some policies around um, take steps to prevent physical access to your device. So I don't hand your device over to strangers. That's kind of like a layer one. Mm -hmm. um, the other one could be like protect access to the data on the device with a passcode, a biometric element or password, and that's layer two. Uh, protect the software on your device with antiviral protection, uh, encryption, that's like a layer three. And then protect access to the cloud, and that's layer four. four. The last one is easier said than done due to the convenience factor, because ultimately, what makes phones so powerful is that we have so much data there at our fingertips and it's easily accessible. And un unknown if people are actually aware of this or not, but your phone is merely just a conduit to the cloud. When I'm accessing my email, whether it's corporate or personal, it's all sitting in the cloud. If I'm looking at photos, many of them are on the cloud. If I'm accessing my social media, that's all on the cloud. So when I don't have to answer my username and password, it's because it's being saved on the device or saved through some device manager. But it's cached, and so it allows me to quickly access that. So if I give someone my device, they have access to that same information. So it's just that gateway. Um, right. So it's easier said than done, right? If you were to basically say, well, hold on, so you're saying that we should protect the cloud, what does that mean? Uh, don't allow your device to save your username and passwords? I mean, you could if you're extremely focused on that, but then that becomes less convenient then the device right. really doesn't right. serve the same function or power that it allows you to afford it today. But those are just some things to think about, and that's kind of that layered approach. Just think through it. Think what's reasonable for the organization. If you work in a bakery and the level of access and or data your potential, if your advice were stolen, your employees might have lost. If it's not, if it's pretty low, well then you don't need to really be too concerned with that. But if you're working in you know, a defense contractor and you have access to sensitive information and your employees are basically walking with, you know, in their pocket access to databases that have a lot of data that could be quite damning or could hurt your intellectual property, you definitely need to take some precautions. What do you think about that, by the way, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, that you're onto something there. I mean, I think the um, a critical point that you mentioned there is like layered security, which is not to say that, you know, I'm, I think a lot of times as security professionals, we tend to... Um, have some fairly draconian recommendations, right? And and they don't always take into account sort of the reality for businesses. You know, like you mentioned, the best practice is, of course, to have organization-issued devices that then you have much more control over. But that's not always a reality for an organization, either because of resources or convenience or whatever, right? Um, but I think that that the the notion that you that you ticked on there that I think is really important to think about is the idea of layered security, which is um, 
something is better than nothing, right? Exactly. And and I think that that the idea of saying like anything you can do to help secure things, whether that's as an organization in terms of your procedures or the software that you do deploy or uh, what have you, um, but even more broadly than that, just sort of creating that that culture of security. So doing things like um, you know uh, l- like you were talking about, sort of training and describing for folks like the ideas of data sensitivity, things like um, a clean desk policy, which is not specifically device related, but indicates that, you know, you should be thinking about sensitive information. Um, I think things like that help create a, a culture of security that, that folks can then um, implement even when they're on their own device. Love it. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so um, let's take a turn here and let's pretend that for a moment that we are criminals. So let's say in this um, in in this not so hypothetical hypothetical that uh, we know that there is an organization with sensitive information that may have some lax protocols. Uh, how would we, as uh, as a criminal, uh, work on exploiting that? Like, what might we do to um, uh, you know to to take advantage of that situation? All right, so we're going to quote pretend we're criminals, right? <laughs> this is, yeah, absolutely make believe. It's make believe land now. All right, so anyone who's in law enforcement listening to this, we're just pretending. Um, so there's so many different things you could do. Um, like, I guess it depends on the level of access. Uh, do we have physical access to the person or the device? If we do, then, and it's something we want to, we're so bold and try to take the step, we could try to gain access to it. Um, that's one technique. Another technique is much more common and easy, which would simply be try to gain remote access to it. Send them a text message. You have access to um, their cell phone number or their email address. You can send them a small exploit, and those are things. You yeah, could quickly before before we get to the to the remote access piece, I just wanted to jump in and say that um, there was a study done. Uh, I, I think it was done last year for the previous ten years of. Um, financial data. So, so uh, an organization studied all of the financial breaches for the past 10 years, and they found that 25% of those breaches came from, like, originated with a lost or stolen device. So, um, I, I, to me, that was a that was a surprise because I, that that is way more common than I would have than I would have thought, right? No, I, no, that is that is that's it's something that happens a lot every day. Like every day, there's someone who loses a computer. Uh, a phone, it is very common. Passphrases and passcodes are become more ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. So I think that number will continue to get smaller and smaller as device manufacturers sort of enable that. Like if you get a brand new phone, it is kind of hard to not enable it. I mean, you have to really say skip, 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 and make a very conscious decision that I am not going to care about security. Right, uh, so right. If I were example, if you were to find my device right now, um, there's a biometric element, there's a passcode element, it's entirely encrypted. You would have to really, really be sophisticated to get past the different security protocols I've in play. Right. Um, so it'd be tough. Like you found it, you, it's essentially a dead device. In addition, I have the ability to access it remotely and enable and delete it. Um, lock it, delete it. Most manufacturers give you that ability. Yep. So again, it's hard, uh, I think, as you become more sophisticated and, and these organizations become more focused on ensuring and protecting all that rich data, uh, to probably that, I'm assuming that statistic will go down more. 
Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, you know, we're, if we're the criminals, we can't afford to just people accidentally lose their devices and we're going to be a target attack. I mean, we're looking at someone specifically who might have access to data that we really find valuable. So we're going to try to do a remote attack. That's what I would do. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not encouraging anyone to do this, by the way. So full disclaimer, <laughs> do not take anything <laughs> I'm saying and saying, this former FBI guy told me to do it. Listen, the, the podcast is called Insider Threat. We have to discuss what the threat, <laughs> what the threat is. We need like some disclaimer, though. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, but it's one of those things that uh, if you do some research, you can gain access to some exploits. And that's what's quite alarming. These exploits, people who aren't in the know, many of these exploits aren't written by the person who actually utilizes it. The vast majority of exploits are acquired and written by someone else. So someone else writes them, they sell them, and now it opens up the playbook to all these individuals who have criminal intentions. So I would hypothetically, if I would create an exploit that would allow you to have access to someone's iPhone remotely, assuming you could get them to click on a link, that would basically unlock. And we'll say, yeah. So let's let's just take a moment and, and talk through that. So that's how it ends up on on a device. You get a you get a message that you know maybe says. This is from um, Apple or Google support or something, or you, um, or you, you know, someone compromises a, an app that you use or, or something like that, right? I mean, it's this isn't a situation where somebody has to has to take your phone and install something on it. This is something where you know you're you're kind of tricked into putting it on the phone yourself. Exactly. There's a high probability, and it's easier to do it this way, to get past some of the firmware security parameters or protocols and devices is really, really difficult. It is so much easier so that you, uh, the user allows you access to the device because that's just built into how function, how phones and technology works. As a sure, user, for all sorts of legitimate reasons. Exactly, exactly. So you right. have a device, you have to authorize it to be downloaded, you have to authorize it to be opened, et cetera. So if we're crafting the exploit, it's easier to do that. Um, and so you work with that parameter. And people are used to it, right? So mm -hmm. however you do it, whatever method you utilize, um, you basically try to social engineer the individual to click on it. So again, what I was saying was that the person who crafts that exploit, they themselves aren't necessarily utilizing it. They're selling it on the dark net or the dark web. So they sell it and now it opens up the playbook for everyone who has that criminal intention. And now you have thousands of people with access to the exploit that are actively utilizing it. And they have an automated systems in play where they just, it's a spray and pay, pray campaign, hoping someone clicks on something. And this is how most pieces of malicious software are disseminated. But ultimately, this is how you would potentially do it, but you'd be targeted. You would specifically hone in on that one individual and then hoping they click on whatever it is you sent them to click on, the exploit opens and executes. If it's successful, now you have access to that device. Now, depending on what the exploit does, um, there's a high probability it's built to be silent. Um, gone are the days when exploits were trying to like lock something and, and do something that makes the user aware of it. If we're yeah, it's not like in the movies where it shows like a skull and crossbones right. or uh, uh uh or whatever, right? <laughs> like it's it's just working in the background all the time. Exactly. Now it depends on the intention of the person because there are situations sure. where people still do that because they want to. There's a ransom, right? If I'm holding sure, home, sure. I need you to know this is locked and you need to pay me money. 
But if I'm not doing that, if I'm basically trying to surreptitiously in this situation, monitor what the person's doing, listen to phone calls, read email, gain access to all those passwords and passphrases and security protocols that are being used and passed through that device, I'm doing it silently. Um, objective would be that person never knows I'm ever on it and they never know anything occurred. There are situations I was privy to in the FBI where like one example I'll give you, I won't give specifics, but ultimately a large financial institution, a piece of malware lay dormant for three years. Uh, there was an exploit approximately three years before this date. So it was part of five years ago. Um, they were aware of it. Uh, they uh, requested assistance from law enforcement. They brought in uh, incident responder. These are people who actually help identify what transpired and eliminate the piece of malware or whatever was in play that caused the exploit to execute. So they did all that. They thought they were completely safe. Unfortunately, they weren't. The particular threat actor had another piece of malware that lay dormant for three years. Uh, they decided during a particular political situation that had arisen, they were going to execute and activate the exploit. And they did. Um, so again, I say that only because the intention many times by these actors is to really gain access to sensitive data and sit and wait and mm -hmm. make that, use that data when it plays their advantage. And as a high probability- Right, so it's not always intuitive that you have just been attacked or that you happen to be carrying something like this because it can be, you know, like you said, it's a spray and pray campaign and the, the hope is that it, it, it gets installed on somebody's phone somewhere, basically. Exactly. So right. that, that's what I would do. Um, what about you? What would you do? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that the, the social engineering bit is interesting for me. I think that if you are aware of a situation where um, sort of the, the protocols around things like getting locked out of your phone or whatever are, you know, to stand in line outside of an Apple store in San Francisco, just again as a hypothetical, um, I think that you would, uh, you know, for me that indicates that that person might be vulnerable to a fake support message or, um, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, no, a socially engineered, you know, um, maybe like a phishing attack that says like, I really need you to download this particular app or, or something like that, that might, you know, that might let me in, um, from that, you know, from that direction. Uh, just because again, the, the level of sophistication around that kind of, um, uh, you know, around those protocols is not very high, right? I agree with you. And it's, you know, something to kind of dig a little bit deeper in as to why that is even more problematic. There's a high probability that individual might not be up to date on their security patches. Um, because it's a personally owned device, you don't have a corporate IT element that's coming through ensuring the information is locked, ensuring that there's a piece in that operating system that is has compartmentalized data. So in situations where you work for the US government and they have access to sensitive information, there's additional layers of security on those mobile devices. It's not like what you and I have, Andy. It's a device maybe like running on the Android operating system, but there's a separate virtual system running that has a higher level of encryption that even if you gain access to the passcode, you would then have to know a much larger and more complicated passphrase to get into that more more compartmentalized sensitive area. But again, I would know that the person who's walking into that iPhone is not gonna have that, or iStore is not gonna, Apple Store, is not gonna have that. <laughs> play. 
So right, you're absolutely right. right. So let's in, instead of ending on sort of the scary thing that could happen, let's let's um, let's leave folks with like one, each of us. Let's give one example of a thing that we might suggest as like a first step toward. Um, some of these protocols, right? Like, let's imagine sort of like a, um, you know, maybe a mid-sized organization that recognizes that, oh, you know what, this is a pretty good illustration that we might have a problem like this. What's something that if I was in a leadership position in IT or in security for that organization, I could do sort of like tomorrow when I got to work that, that might start me in the right direction? So I think starting off um, a more like policy-related move would be to research some standard operating procedures that really kind of hit home on focusing on that security component um, and empowering someone in your team. If you're a mid-sized organization and this is something that you're deciding to focus in on, empower somebody on your security team to do the research. Have that person say, you know, we'll call him Bill. Bill, your job is to really vet this out. What's realistic? talk to other people on the organization. Is it possible for us to have a corporate level device? How much security do you need? Because it's a very complex question. Again, if you're a mid-sized organization and you're distributing uh, paper, there may not be an implicit need to have a lot of sensitive uh, conversations on your devices. However, if some of those individuals you're distributing paper to are at secure locations and that access would be interesting to the right individual, that is sensitive. The other thing that... Right. So even if you as, as Dunder Mifflin or whoever don't think that you have a major security risk, one of your clients may be at risk through your procedures, you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, a lot of it is just that other element that's at that your client base or information that you're not necessarily thinking about top of mind. And that's why I really encourage in this as an organization to have someone think through those issues, think through the nuances, think through the, well, hold on, what about that one situation? And the other thing too, if you're in a non-technical organization or even if you're in a technical organization, and you're not up to date on the latest trends in mobile computing and mobile devices, you might not be aware of some of the other access that you're given on a mobile device. And that's something that could be quite disconcerting to people if they were to be aware of like I had no idea I could record full conversations on the latest version of Android and have them transcribed. That's interesting. Right. So right. think about that if it got in the wrong hands, meaning you and I right now are, are talking. If my phone were surreptitiously transcribing this conversation, it's kind of a pain logistically to listen to it, but it's much easier to read it. So what if I was able sure. to then pull that transcription off my phone and now I have access to everything I said that entire day and I can just program a piece of software to comb through it and look for keywords, sensitive right. password. Right. So again, these are things that unless you're in the know, you wouldn't necessarily be aware of. So again, that's why I really like the idea of having someone empowered on your security team to research it. Yeah, so find your bill and give Bill exactly. the, the resources that Bill needs, right? Bingo. Um, bill, you get whatever you want for a few weeks. <laughs> there you go. And then I would say, uh, you know, from my perspective, I would start looking outside of the security team and start figuring out ways that you can uh, introduce that kind of security and data awareness as part of your 
as part of your culture. So whether that's, you know, some formalized training and there's plenty of third party vendors out there that, that, you know, provide that kind of training or even just introducing some policies with, you know, some, some meetings or, or memos or whatever that start getting people thinking about um, the idea of data security and data sensitivity. Um, uh, again, as, as Michael pointed out earlier, the, the notion of layered security, I think, is, is, is really important. And, and even just having that awareness um, across your organization uh, can, can be of some can be of some service. So if somebody then gets in a position where um, they're locked out of their phone, but they do realize that there's, you know, some sensitive emails or something on there, maybe they'll think twice and, and, and talk to your IT department before heading over to the Apple store, for example. Exactly. You know, I mean, end of the day, mobile phones are a gateway into our lives, including all the invaluable people we might have connections to. So we should strive to protect that gateway. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So I think uh, that's a good summary, I think, for what you and I have said during the entire podcast, is just think through that yeah, issue. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great that's a great place to leave it. So we hope this has been this has been helpful, and, and uh, I, I have sure enjoyed our inaugural episode here. So we'll be back soon with more uh, topics about security and technology. Michael, thank you very much. Andy, I appreciate it. As always, you're an awesome dude. Love talking to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Same to you, my friend. You can follow our show on Twitter or Instagram at ThreatPod. You should also give us a rating or review wherever you found our podcast. That will help other people find the show as well. We'd like to thank DevCon again, not only for sponsoring our podcast, but also for our day jobs and for offering the Protect Elect initiative where businesses can get protection from malvertising through the next election for free. Just visit devcondetect.com. Our theme song is Please Listen Carefully from Javier Suarez. You can find more from Javier at betterwithmusic.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time with more Insider Threat. All right, so we stop recording? <laughs>